Welcome to Use After Free, where we will discuss whatever topics are on our minds at the moment. This is an outlet for us to explore new ideas, challenge each other, challenge ourselves, and challenge our listeners. We believe that discussion about hard topics is vital to the success of our country, our communities, and ourselves. Have a listen, start a discussion, and reach out to be involved. We hope you like this episode, and please subscribe for more content. So as you were talking about there, uh, we were talking about the importance of the um, of how Tyson was owned by another entity. We were talking about some trade and talking about NAFTA. Uh, did you want to elaborate on that? I, I wasn't aware of their ownership agreements. Yeah, so Tyson is indeed owned by a... A uh, company based out of Chong- Hong Kong, 51% majority sh- stakeholdership of Universal Plan Investments. And I, I think it's worth a call out or worth a discussion at least to, to talk about how corporations who reside in America and seem to be very much patriotic, wholesome things might have external beneficiaries or, you know, parent organizations and have their own specific interests at play. I I really think that this forms this goes a lot of ways for me, and I know we're we're just going to break the the topic line here. I I agree because I think that Tyson is such a great example of this. Because I'm going to rattle off my other ones right now, and where I think that this becomes a really ish really sticky issue that's hard to undermine. Get it? Um, okay, so first of all, Riot Games owned by China. Everyone loves League of Legends. <laughs> But no one really cares that it's a Chinese-owned company other than the direction of the game, right? It's a game. What's the consequence? Tyson Chicken, that's pretty integral, right? That's a big uh, That's a big livelihood to a lot of people, right? The American farmer, the American... Those are American jobs, right? Those are jobs here. But more importantly, like let's put on our tinfoil hats and say what happens when America needs to isolate in terms of war, in terms of embargo or treaties that we pass right having an externally controlled main food source of americans is way different than a video game and to some lesser thing look at uh like diageo the massive beverage conglomerate that owns brands like hendrix aviation casamigas arrow uh they own uh bourbon brands that are you know wholeheartedly america's number one spirit right so you can look at the scale, right? And to me, it's video games that are literally trivial. Spirits, which we can all talk about how it's probably foundational and people would go to war for alcohol. Case in point, look at the 18th and 21st Amendment, which would be the start and end of prohibition for those who are not keeping track at home. And then the end point would be look at our main food source, like chicken, which is known as one of our most vital and most inexpensive protein sources um, and sustenance in this country. So when we look at those impacts, how important would you say chicken is to America? I would say chicken is probably the number one most important livestock in America. Can you cite any pieces of legislation that come to your mind immediately that would, I mean, just rough ballpark might have to do anything at all with chicken. The um, the Association of Poultry is one of the major lobbying unions in America. So one of the first things that comes to my mind is the chicken tax. Are you familiar with this? I have heard it, but I could always use a refresher. 
So for those of you listening out there, the chicken tax is something that uh, the United States enacted post-World War II, where chicken was sought after as a delicacy over in Europe, right? And America has chickens coming out our butts, literal chicken butts. Chicken butts. Because guess what? Chicken butt. Chicken butt. (laughs) Right. So America has all these chickens. Europe sees chicken as a delicacy. We start shipping all the chickens over there. It just wrecks the economy over there. Just does terrible, terrible things. I mean, flooding an economy that, you know, supply, demand stuff things. So America or Europe puts this gigantic tax on America's chickens that, hey, you know, we're going to have a lot of tariffs on you because you ship so much chicken out. You're you're killing our local economy, man. And America says, that's some bullcrap. We're going to tax small trucks and vehicles as they get imported into the United States. I was going to say chicken tax. This became a this became a colloquialism that was applied to everything because you're right. That's where I can place it. It came back to the auto industry in the 90s with not only the Nissan small uh, trucks that they were or Mitsubishi small trucks, but also the Nissans. Yes. So that's why you don't see today any of like when I deployed to Afghanistan, uh, one of my favorite things to do over there was drive the uh, colloquialism, the fob beater. The local truck that was a four-wheel drive diesel truck completely stripped down. I'm not saying it was the best vehicle I've ever driven in. However, I would love a small diesel truck, four-door, four-wheel drive for a very inexpensive price tag in America. I don't know that that can exist. I don't know that there's enough demand for that to exist for our current manufacturers to do. Because obviously they've got, you know... um, market group research that they've done that says, no, no one else wants that. You're just a weirdo. But yeah, that's why you don't see um, small trucks in America that are foreign made. Like the, the Tata trucks, the Toyota Helixes, those things, they don't exist in America specifically because the chicken tax. So bringing that back, you're saying that Chicken is integral to the American society, and it has far-reaching ramifications outside of providing a cheap food source, but so much so that has influenced legislature that has been expanded upon the whole economic scale. I would say that explicitly. Circling back around, things that operate in America with external interests at, at play, and something that's come up in the news lately, what's your take on the president's ability to govern or dictate or legislate whatever you want to call it, uh, organizations like TikTok operating inside the U.S. Can he ban an app that was written from people, like the citizens at large? I don't believe so. I don't, especially don't believe he can conduct merger conversations between a top tech company and an offshore company. That seems woefully outside of the powers, the limited powers that are prescribed to the office of the president. Or request Uh, or dictate, for that matter, um, any portion of the sale that would be conducted go to the treasury outside of obvious taxes and change hand transaction stuff. The facetious part of me wants to say, of course, he can request whatever he wants. Whether it should be listened to is another question. 
that's fair dictate right like so to make a decree as to such yeah no i mean that that opens the doors into the whole fact of right like congress isn't going to care that much about it or they're not going to move quick enough and i personally have a detestation against what is becoming the common use of executive orders i think executive orders are awful outside of their main purpose um, and I think they're being abused, especially surrounding the legislation that's currently been passed or rulings by the Supreme Court of um, how executive orders should be used. I think I think that's appalling, but I think it's going to open doors in discussions like TikTok and things going forward. So could you cite a executive order that you wholeheartedly disagree with? On the fact, there is one passed... August 24th of 2020, so this week, as the calendar falls, uh, which is the executive order on targeting opportunity zones and other distressed communities for federal site locations. This is uh, executive order that is amending executive order 12,072 of August 16th, 1978, that gives an amendment to um, an adjustment. My my big issue with this comes down to the fact that executive orders are there to carry out the president's powers as necessary, and it is to carry out the executive branch's goal. Once you cross the line into legislating via executive order, you're circumventing the purpose of checks and balances and branches in the government when you have an executive order that is changing how law operates, that's not how the country was founded or the formation that we are supposed to follow. So I strongly disagree with those, even if those executive orders cut in favor of my political bias and what I believe. If it's a boon for me, I still disagree with the means of how we got there. And I think it's overstepping. I think that that's, that's a hard pill to swallow and a hard thing to come to because obviously I enjoy the outcome, but I don't necessarily want that outcome if it means that we're compromising the standards that we set. Recently, it was passed when, purely out of biasness, it seems, that executive orders will stand. The, the key to executive orders was that they were the executive of that president. So as soon as the office changed, executive orders passed, fell through. Um, but they recently made a change in legislation that executive orders stand. So in this case specifically, it was when President Obama made an executive order that enacted parts of Obamacare. This legislation was passed so that President Trump could not usurp those powers. I think this sets a dangerous precedent where using the mechanism of an executive order, being able to circumvent legislature completely to pass a law that you want for your own outcomes, then it stays in the books and is not undone by another president means that we're going to find this horrible pendulum of the political atmosphere as it swings towards one side and it's just executive order after executive order as Congress is trying to check it. And then it swings back the other way as is seen every four to eight years in this country. And more executive orders are passed to undercut those that were passed before. And I just I think it's a terrible precedent. 
I think it goes against everything that we set as our way of passing laws and having checks and balances. And I do believe that it's supposed to move slowly and grind through the legislative process on purpose. And I think part of that is to temper people's responses and to stop knee-jerk reactions, really balance out that noise. If you want to get on like a electrical or technological analogy, you, you want to tune out that noise and the, the immediate gut reaction by putting it through this long process of review and vote. Um, and I, I just detest executive orders as a whole. Yes. Report, I mean, to what you to what you were talking about, right? I did not know that uh, the Obama era passed legislation that effectively did a doorstop on one executive order versus another. And it was my preconceived notion that the second person picking up the torch had to reenact all of those previous presidential Oh, no, no. That was recent. Oh, really? That was 2020. However, um, I I would cut the other way of, I mean, in the same vein, though, right? Like, I disagree with the idea that the president should be able to decree something. And I agree with you that 100% the, the feature is the bug of grinding the legislation through getting, you know, through all of the different winnows or getting through all the wickets, rather getting the legislation through all the wickets, making it sure it work, works for everyone because the federal law has to work for everyone, right? So something that cuts for one way or the other, it's it's bad because it's cut out for a specific group. And that's, that's bad in my opinion. Law should work for everyone. To that end, um, Trump enacted the bump stock, bump stock ban uh, executive order where – all of a sudden he's reinter uh, dictating to the ATF, which is not a body that is elected. It's an appointed body, right? How you're going to interpret a law that has been on the books for since the national firearms act. And it is now to be interpreted a different way. So the power given to the executive branch, which there's an elected official then gets delegated down to an agency, which is not an elected official. You can't vote them out of office. You have no recourse other than to sue the entire government as a whole, which is a gigantic undertaking in and of itself. And your recourse isn't that someone gets fired. Some penalization happens. It's that you are allowed to have your right back. And that touches on a lot of things about the uh, the individual right coming back in like your, your idea of, the ways to protect that but i mean to that end i think it was george carlin that said if the government can take it away and give it to you and that's what a right is is the government doing that is it really is it is it really anything true it's really interesting to say you know on a one-on-one conversation it's really easy to have with an individual who disagrees with you fundamentally and that's something that's very easily overcome However, when you're faced with uh, a group of individuals who you're, again, very close friends with, they know you personally, but like many different individuals coming at, you, coming at you with, you know, contrary points of thought, it's very hard to engage in that conversation, that one-on-one on an on a individual basis, because to, to have a real debate in an actual in-depth conversation, you have to 
hey, here's this idea. Okay, cool. I dispute that idea because X, Y, and Z. And here's this other idea from a different person and another idea. And it becomes this machine gun of here's why you're wrong. And only one side of voices get heard. And it's just a single person who gets sorted out, othered, if you will, as they like to say, in the situation of a group conversation. So how do you deal with something like that? I think that's really hard to address, uh, especially in that one versus many setting. I think the biggest idea that you can take forward is um, focus it back on you. Focus, this is what I believe because of X, Y, and Z. And if you, like, where where are the holes, so to speak? Like, prove me wrong. Tell me where this is wrong. Because you're right, you can't engage 10 different ideas on the minutia or the small pieces of their thought um, when it's one on 10. Because when you address one person's, that opens up nine others to say, well, that's not what I believe or that's not my take on it. And it, it does create that uphill battle type of viewpoint. Yeah. So, so you can ask for one at a time or you can try to set out these... Uh, more focused on your viewpoints and then that shouldn't be i mean it'd be more less overwhelming it'd be more of like here's why i believe that okay there's nine people ten people trying to say why or point out holes in that scenario but generally speaking they're going to try to pile onto a couple of different viewpoints yeah to that end uh the the success i did have was hey you know one at a time because having thought-provoking ideas and engaging in uh, those types of conversations really does require a bit of research. I mean, if you're already spun up and you already have the depth of knowledge on something, that's amazing. However, if you don't and someone brings up a new thought-provoking idea, it, it should take you some time, some real it should take you some time, some real introspective time to think about, hey, does this idea have merit? Yeah, and I, th- I think that's a big one too, a, a big law I see in something even in myself that I try to recognize and I've been better at is being able to see something and then saying you know what that's not a topic that I know a lot about or that's not something that I particularly care about not to say that it isn't important it's just not where I have focused my energy so I i don't have a means to debate that point right now, or I, I don't have a strong position on it. I think, I think that hits on something too, is that a lot of people feel the need that everyone needs to have a position on every single piece of something. And there, there are some things that it's okay to just not have a strong position on. I mean, because you haven't done the research. And I think that that takes a lot of courage to admit too, that even if it's a controversial topic today, if you haven't done the research, how can you hold a strong opinion? Right. I mean, I think it's it's critical that we have that perspective of, hey, I hold this point of view. Okay, can you logically debate, either intrinsically or extrinsically? Well, can you logically debate, either with yourself or with uh, a friend, both sides both sides of the argument? And understand both and still come to the same rationale on where your thoughts and where your opinions lie. Exactly. I think I think that's a big one. Um, I also think, you know, I, I focus on and I'm very clear about what I care about um, and what my personal 
standings are, and that's not even necessarily political uh, positions, but also um, the logical formation and the process of getting to those opinions, right? I love people who are logically consistent, and I like the ability to be able to follow it through and apply with critical thinking the same standard across the board, even if it is uncomfortable at times. Um, and I, I think a lot of the time in other ways, that's been a way that I've used to diffuse situations or um, in another, in like the not so great way of saying it is like calling, calling people out on it or calling out um, a point that doesn't, that doesn't stand to have merit when you see it um, is to use a, like a consistency type argument against that. Um, and to show to show that one sidedness or to show that hypocrisy, and I think that technique can cause a stagger or a stumble in the person that I'm talking to, to where they have to go, oh, gee, maybe I do need to think about this or form another position. Right? Um, I think it's a big flaw in the beginning to accept the premise that, as it's given to you. Right? When you receive the question, you need to restate it and frame it in the way that makes sense to you and to make sure you guys are talking the same way not always accept what's given to you as the, the yes. facts or the asking basics. the person when you start to engage in a conversation a back and forth a dialogue whatever to define what they're talking about is critical and that way you can kind of set scopes and boundaries of things right so like hey i i believe that life begins at conception let's take as a very controversial topic um to that end that means, you know, X, Y, and Z occurs. This is when a human is a human. So here is my thought process for that. Here is this. And you can, you can start that dialogue there. And, you know, no cards up my sleeve. Here's where I'm at. Everything's on the table. Sure. Yeah, I think, I think that's, a, that's a big one. And I, I do try to even say the thing, like, I'm going to ask you what you mean by things or to define things. And it's not to belittle your position, but so that we are both explicitly clear on what we mean when we say something, because you're right. I, I see it all too often when people just talk past each other and that you're just arguing points to, to no one. Um, and that, that doesn't make for any growth in that topic um, at all. And I, I think it's also critically important to say that because you ask the question doesn't demean the other person's opinion, doesn't mean that like there's it's a it's not a nihilist perspective, right? Like or it would be a nihilist perspective to sit there and say, hey, no matter what the what the outcome of this debate or turmoil is, it's not going to matter because I can't affect change. And I think that some people have that opinion, but really um, even even controversial topics like the right to life versus pro-choice and whatnot the the discussion of that is is critical and thought-provoking and you know self-reflecting here one of the most interesting conversations i've ever had was one with one of my family members who who was like uh, this was a while back and he told me that yes i just went through con law and i believe that you know there is no unlimited right no matter what you say or what you do, there is a limitation to whatever rights you have. And I had no valid argument for that statement. I had nowhere to go with that. And I was just like, wow, that was very, I disagree with you on a feeling, but I can't disagree with you on any logical basis. I will have to revisit that. And it took me many, many weeks to try and 
unpack all of that single statement that really caused a lot of self-reflection. Um, yeah, what'd you come to? I think he's right. And I think I, I like I said, specifically regarding the Second Amendment, I, I can't draw a conclusion that it's okay to own, you know, specifically on the Second Amendment. I came to the conclusion that, no, I don't believe it's okay to own nuclear warheads in the hands of private citizens. So there's obviously a limitation on that right. Um, limitations on freedom of speech. It's not just carte blanche. There are repercussions and there are actions that happen, you know. Um, I think there are definitive and reasonable limitations on rights with a gigantic caveat that yes, there is a limitation to it. However, you know, insert litany of other arguments. Right. So I think that that's where you come to this idea that you, you can't put rights in a vacuum um, and examine it that way. And I think uh, there's, there's been multiple people who talk about it, but the idea that there's um, that the social fabric and the necessary social contract that you make where you are and where you stay. So yes, you have your inalienable rights and those are enshrined as in we will limit the government from taking these certain rights, but there are also at the same time, you give up those upper bounds, right? You give up the, um, that never ending purpose of your bounds to reap the benefits of being a part of that society. So when you come here, part of your societal contract to people around you is where you place limitation on those rights. And then we just reinforce that the government cannot encroach further or dictate within that. Uh, so I'm going I'm to pause it real quick because you said a lot of buzzwords and my head's kind of spinning right now. Okay. And I'd really like to deep dive into those because words have meaning, right? Sure. So you mentioned, first and foremost, social contract. And yep. I feel like that's a buzzword going around today. What is the social contract? So your social contract is the idea that um, you can't just live within a political, like a legalist society, um, but that you owe. Um, it, it's kind of the unstated, broader brush culture that you can put across a country in today's terms. So the idea of being like in America, there's a ton of different subcultures that you can pick apart. I mean, you can probably find dozens easily, but there's underlying principles when you step outside of where in America, what is your cultural identity? But like, how is America seen on a global stage versus how is Germany seen versus how is Japan, Australia, India, I'd name the country, but there's a there's like a societal that your con societal contract is when you are basically in the simplest terms when you go to that country, what are you saying as a person you are doing to give a good? Um, what are you, what are you giving to that society? Like what what are you accepting as your role to play? in that society and what will you do that meets the confines of the law? So by that definition, it sounds like what you're trying to say is culture and your engagement in that culture as an individual contributor. 
Sure, or you could say it's what do you do in a non-legal sense that is good for you. So what what are your non-legal motivations that the country tends to identify around? The United States, a little bit unique, right? Everyone likes to point out how the country is founded on Christianity, or you look at other cultures that po- uh, put a big emphasis on you know, caring for your neighbor, supporting each other, um, helping out when you can, being isolationist, you know, that there's lots of different cultures that come across, but like, what, what are you willing to do? So basically to put it in a more tangible way that doesn't sound so like meldy and gooey is what are the common held limitations to those rights? that we don't, that aren't prescribed by the government. So when you come to America, you accept that you have freedom of speech, freedom of the right to bear arms, freedom of religion. But what, what does that mean? Like you understand also, you know, you are not going to own weapons of mass destruction because you can't, it's not great. Um, There is a sense of work ethic or drive um, or innovation, um, there is less of a limit in that role that you will perform. But if you're part of, um, a lot of people will find that sect from the, from their religious institution. You will take care of the sick. You will help the elderly that you know. You will donate time, money, food, whatever you can to be a good neighbor or to be a good uh, fellow in your religious congregation, whatever your creed. You're willing to put some upper limits on your own freedoms that are not set by the government because it's for the betterment of that society. Gotcha. So the next thing I wanted to discuss was you mentioned inalienable rights. Yes. What are inalienable rights? So as defined in the Constitution, our inalienable rights are the rights to uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That is to say... Those are the God-given rights. Those are not rights, I I know it's been said, rights that are given and taken away. Um, The counter-argument to that is that rights cannot be given nor taken away. You are born with them innately. You are born into this earth. You have these rights from God, from the higher being, from what your creed determines, but they are not there to be removed in any case. Um, this was the founding of the limited government. The fact that we would limit governments reach into these because it is these come from a higher power than man-made government. So your inalienable rights are those rights that even a government cannot take away from you because they do not have the proper authority. So to speak to that a bit more, to cite the Federalist Papers, uh, I believe it was Madison who said... If men were governed by angels, we would not need these as, you know, there would be no infringement upon them. If men governed angels, it would be divine for them to for, to do whatever they want because they have no free will. However, it is that man governs man and thus is intrinsically flawed, right? So the idea that you can take these away is something that we need to protect and conserve. Right, that in man's own struggle to gain more power, they would try to infringe upon the rights that are not theirs to take away. Therefore, we must limit those who would rise to power and try to use their newfound power to do so. 
that is the underlying purpose of enshrining your inalienable rights in the Constitution. Which is really deep if you think about it. It's it's really very eloquently said. Yeah, they're very smart. Very smart people. Founding fathers knew a thing or two. They did. I don't know what you were doing when you were 26, but... Uh, definitely not being a uh, philosopher of any sort. Right, right. So I think those are those are the big the big pieces there um, on on the inalienable rights piece. Yeah, cool. So transitioning topics. Mm-hmm. Do you have anything you wanted to talk about? I mean, I do find I do find an interesting, fun, fun exercise. Like I said, about striving for consistency, and um, when people present their argument in a way that seems nonsensical, being able to use their argument in a way against them always seems good. That's that's been the proven. Elaborate. So, um, so one example, right? Is I've I've been told by some points that um, it either comes down to like a privilege or an opinion attack, generally speaking, um, either like due to the color of my skin or due to my gender that I do not have a view on something, or that is not as valid as a member of that group. Um. And and I find I find that that's a very pointless argument because I don't I don't understand what that has to do like how some immutable characteristic of mine can va- validate or invalidate my opinion on something, um, especially if I look into it. But generally speaking, and the you know a big flaw in this logic tends to be when it gets applied in a situation that does not benefit them. Um, I know both in, both you and I were in the military. Um, generally, a lot of people who <laughs> have raised this will say, you know, like that doesn't matter because you're X, Y, or Z. But then when the topic turns to um, the Iraq War, military intervention, anything like that, the second you're like, but but you never served, like how, you don't have a valid opinion of that. You, your opinion doesn't matter because you're not a member of that class all of a sudden it it becomes a very speechless point and they say, well, what are you saying? Because you're telling me that that's a valid reason that your opinion cannot be heard. And it generally makes those people stop and stumble for a second. And I was like, okay, now now if you want to clarify a position or have an exchange on these ideas, that's perfectly fine. I, I think that's a great point you bring up. So being that as it may, I mean... I think any shutdown of dialogue is detrimental to the, uh, what is it called? The healing that needs to be, that needs to be occurring in the United States of people being less divisive, less gasha, less, I think on a whole, we could be better people. Yeah. Less polarizing. Polarizing. Thank you. So just engaging in those open dialogues, engaging in those uh, interesting thought process of do my ideas, you know, conform to how I actually believe and and really running them to ground and having those, again, internal dialogues of, OK, if I think this, can this be is this a broad enough brush that I can paint my opinions on to where it logically pans out? Right. And I, th- I think that's the hard part. That's that's a hard part to do when you don't find people that have opposite views or different views and you sit in an echo chamber and everyone just kind of pats each other on the back um, and they just amplify these talking points that that don't necessarily highlight anything or challenge anything and you can't grow. Um, 
so being able to be exposed to those options, I think really can help you help individual growth, but also like that's the step towards that healing, right? Is understanding that these ideas don't have to be the only idea that's out there and everything else has to be wrong, right? You can disagree on a lot and still understand that nobody on the other side of the aisle as it is wants to watch the world burn, right? Both people are generally speaking trying to do what is right um, or what they think is right to get towards a good angle. And um, what I find out more often than not is that there is the same end goal, right? People still want it to be better, want it to be healed, want to move forward, want to have more cohesive relationships across the whole country. But how we get there is the struggle. And I think that's where the exchange needs to be instead of just thinking the other person's trying to watch the world burn. Yeah, I, th- I think on the whole, people want to see good happen, right? Right. And the, the means on that and how that occurs is different. So, like, I, I don't believe the Obama Obama or the Obama administration meant to do harm. Sure. To that end, I don't believe that the means he pursued to go about his will were the best either. That's very valid. So, uh, again, like, I don't think that the Trump administration aims to incite a race war, as some people might see. I don't... I think he is doing the best at which I think he's doing the best job that he can to hold us together as such as well. At times, there are times, again, it's not a intellectually defensible point to say he should not put put the phone down and step away from the Twitter. Yeah, I mean, I, I think he's trying his best. I think that there becomes there there's a big highlight between the last two administrations, which is how well they can present their point to a mass appeal. Um, I think that's a very stark difference between the two. However, you're right. I don't think there's a massive difference in motivation. I think both of them are doing what they believe they can be. Um, but I also try not to have too much conjecture on what someone's internal motivations to do something is. Right. So that brings up a great point. Um, if I say, Hey, Trump says stuff that I disagree with. However, you know, I still believe he should be president. And the counterpoint would be, well, then how do you know when to take him serious? And I, the only counterpoint that I can take to that is his actions. The actions that he's done have stimulated the economy, right? I don't think that that's a arguable point, considering it is better than we were previous. Right. I, I think that was a big one. It's like, look at what's put on paper and see how that goes forward. Um, I I can ignore what people say. People say things all the time. It's how they follow up what they say or if they follow through with what they say that I will use to measure what is the effect. Certainly. And I wanted to touch on something like engaging in conversation across the aisle. I think you're right. It really should be a one-on-one dynamic. And to do that, it's really just ask your friends their opinions and go forward and challenge their ideas And I I think that has to be done on a basis, though, of the individual understanding, like, all premises getting involved in the conversation. So trying to have a debate in an open forum, you're you're not going to progress anyone's ideas in that sort of an echo chamber. I, I would agree. I think also it comes down to just, you know, perceiving someone who's willing to have those conversations or maybe finding the topic that they are less 
formulate it on and be like, hey, this is this is where I stand because of these reasons. If you feel like that's not something that you agree with or after you hear me out or after you see what I have or you want to go look into it for yourself, that's great. But I think, you know, maybe starting on some of those hard cast edges may not be the best way forward um, in your first your first time talking to that individual. Um, again, it depends on how much you know the person and how involved they are and how much they do. I mean, I think another thing, too, is to understand that most people have our best uh, chances to do facts um, and to do what we um, no, no one's trying to purposefully mislead the other when you're doing those one-on-one conversations with people that you know. Um, sure. You know, it's it's not going to be as semantic. It's going to be like, I believe these these things or this is what was said or this is the idea behind that legislation that I disagree with. Um, it's not it's not quite the same as, you know, like being on a syndicated news show or something like that where if you say one word wrong, it's wrong completely. Um, just understand, you know, it's a genuine intention. It's a genuine conversation. And you just want to exchange those ideas and see how someone's doing and see what their views are. Because, heck, you know, you might learn something just as well as they do. So to that end, I mean, I see divisiveness on both sides, right? Sure. I see issues on both sides, but I don't see the, I see, it's, it feels like at least, and maybe I'm not expanding my horizons enough, it feels like individuals on the other side of the fence are the ones who are calling for the shutdown of the, con- shutting down of the conversation. It feels like individuals on the left are the ones doing the, uh, you know, disruption of having those conversations. I, I think that's easy. I, I would say in the current situation, that is what tends to happen. Um, and I don't say that lately. I'm not saying that there aren't exceptions and that doesn't happen on both sides, but um, I would say right now that that is the benefit of the mob rule. That is the benefit of having it. Also, um, I believe part of that ideological stance is that if the other side is regressed behind a certain point, that they're just so wrong. Therefore, we don't, we shouldn't listen to it. It's not a point to be made because it's it's already wrong, um, and it doesn't deserve that time to be engaged with. Um, I think when that's the mentality that goes forward mainly due to those mass generalizations and being able to say, you know, it's very easy to castigate the whole group. I think that's that's where that comes from, right? That that shouting it down, saying, well, we don't have to listen to that um, because it's not worth listening to. Um, I think that's the overpowering message uh, that, you, that you're feeling a lot. Yeah, yeah. I, I've, I can say that I have had discussions where it was, I was told... It's not even it's not fruitful to have that conversation because it's bad and there's going to be there's nothing's going to come from it. And I thought to myself, that's really a very obtuse angle to take. Sure. And And those are the times I just leave it. Yeah. I'm just like, all right. Yeah. I mean, you have to know the individual and where to draw that line and where to, you know, pull the crowd, you know, part of debating is part of the showmanship of the debate. It's, it's speaking to the other person and kind of, you know, directing things where you want to go or where you'd like them to go at least, or at least engaging, you know, what are you getting out of the debate as well? 
Right. Yep. That's a big. That's a big point too. And um, I mean, I'll, I won't be ashamed to admit that a lot of the time. I just, I just like to see what other people think. I like to engage in those ideas and come across something new and novel to me that I haven't heard. Because as much as I try to read sources from every side and I try to get the news from everywhere that I can and be critical of it. Um, and then I overlay those to find the common threads and that's how I determine what, what the actual events were. Um, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I haven't interpreted it correctly. Maybe there's a point I hadn't considered or an angle I hadn't seen. And I want to hear about that. So I, I don't think that I'm immune to being caught up in a small echo chamber either. So I, I try to open those dialogue to challenge myself but I don't necessarily think that that's what everyone does. Sure. Sure. Hey, y'all. So this isn't the smoothest transition, but we wanted to thank you for listening and let you know that next week we're stepping back from politics and debate, and we want to talk about our life transitions and getting to know the big moments in each of our lives. So please subscribe, come back next week, and get to know us a little better. Thanks.